Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Um, one of the most striking, one of the ones we see reported quite often is fatigue. And, and this isn't just, I'm a little tired, I need a cup of coffee. This is, I, I go up a flight of stairs and I'm done. I have to now sit down. This is, you just can't do, you know, normal things. I, I try to do a walk around the block. I've had triathletes that a flight of stairs is just enough to sort of finish them for the day. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Deborah Martin for Elite Learning, and you've just heard Dr. Daniel Griffin refer to one of the health issues frequently associated with the post-SARS-CoV-2 cluster of symptoms commonly known as long COVID. Debilitating fatigue is joined by other symptoms, including dyspnea, tachycardia, headache, joint pain, gastrointestinal upset, and cognitive impairment. Not to mention the mental health effects of persistent illness experienced by tens of thousands of people following COVID-19 infection. Dr. Griffin is an internal medicine infectious diseases physician with expertise in COVID-19. He is the co-host of the highly rated podcasts This Week in Parasitism and This Week in Virology, in which he discusses developments in SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis and treatment, as well as post-infection sequelae. You can learn more about Dr. Griffin's background in the show notes for this episode. You'll find explanatory graphics and other helpful information in the show notes too. In this second episode of our two-part podcast, Dr. Griffin continues to explain the phases of COVID-19 infection and treatment of long COVID symptoms. All right, so now it's been that first week and now... Um, you, you've spoken to your provider, maybe they've talked about, you know, the time for monitoring, um, you're keeping track of things, but now you're starting to have a little trouble breathing or you're checking your finger every day, make sure that oxygen level is staying up and you start to notice the oxygen level starts to drop, starts to drop below 94, maybe starts to drop into the 80s. This is when you want to start thinking about steroids, not that first few days, not that first, we used to say weak with the others, but now it might be a little shorter with Omicron. Um, when your oxygen level starts dropping, that's when you wanna be thinking about the steroids. Um, I will say, this may be what keeps people out of the hospital. There is a reduction in your chance of death here. We're not sure about the impact on long COVID. So, but something to think about there. Um, anticoagulation. Do we start taking blood thinners? Do we take an aspirin every day? Um, we've looked at that in people that are in the hospital. Um, they're not moving around. Clearly a benefit. Um, we've looked at it in people that we're able to keep out of the hospital, able to keep them up and about. Um, not helpful, potentially harmful. So we, we recommend sort of holding back, right? It's a lot of a disease where doing nothing is better than doing something that we're trying to help but potentially harmful. And that's difficult for healthcare providers to do. To oh, sit gotcha. back and do nothing or sit back and wait. And <laughs> <laughs> yes. We're doers. We want to do things. Less yes. is more sometimes. So yeah, don't do not do something if it might harm our patients. You know, we've got it. We've got to step back and say, we're treating our patient, not ourselves. Um, you may feel like you want to do something, but 
what you want to do is what's best for your patients. So no, that, that mm-hmm. I, I agree. That is hard. We want to do stuff. Um, pulmonary, what do we do to help support these people? If the individuals start having trouble, um, sometimes just positioning. Um, you know, I was talking to my patients. Are, are you a person who likes to sleep on their back? How do you feel about sleeping on your belly? Um, this is oftentimes when people might end up in the hospital. Um, this is that time we might give them that remdesivir. Um, how much does the remdesivir do? I'm not sure. If anything, I think the problem, it's an IV medicine. We're probably giving it too late. So the most promising data, um, you know, that actually they're acting on in certain places like California was giving this during that first week. So the challenges of setting up centers, how do you, how do you go ahead and do that? Um, so there we are. So now the person is potentially in the hospital or not in the hospital. Um, as we talked about that critical second week, people start to get better. Most people will start to get better. Um, but then sometimes we can start to see a setback. Um, and what we call this period of the, the secondary infection phase or this later inflammatory This is when you're at risk of actually getting those bacterial infections, those fungal infections. This is when you may actually want to consider using antibiotics, using antifungals, but you want to have this diagnostically driven. This is also when people can have those clotting complications. So this is when you really have to start thinking it through. This is not just a connecting the dots. What about people that are more at risk for clotting, such as um, a protein S deficiency? How does, has COVID impacted that in any way, or are they not necessarily at more risk than the general population? No. So there is, there is something we call it the Improve score, I-M-P-R-O-V-E, and a nice publication came out looking at this. Because um, one of the challenges, if you get that person through the hospitalization, right? So when they're in the hospital, we're making a judgment. What's their risk of, of clotting? Are we using low dose or high dose? If they have risk factors, we're recommending high dose. If they end up in the ICU, we'll say low dose, individualized. But now they leave the hospital. If they have a, a high risk or if they're high risk of clotting, these might people be people that go home on um, blood thinners, trying to prevent them from having clotting complications. Thank and I you. guess that's, that's what brings us right into long COVID or the tail phase, right? Um, prior to vaccinations, right. we were seeing estimates of about 30% of individuals who were infected, um, who got COVID. Most people are staying out of the hospital. So the larger number is people that never end up in the hospital. Four weeks go by, six weeks go by, eight weeks go by, and they are not feeling better. Now, some of this um, is expected, right? People ended up in the ICU. There's a certain post-ICU syndrome. Um, Some people may have actually had kidney or heart or lung damage, but other people just feel bad. And there's a number of long-term issues that we see. Um, one of the most striking, one of the ones we see reported quite often is fatigue. And, and this isn't just, I'm a little tired, I need a cup of coffee. This is, I, I go up a flight of stairs and I'm done. I have to now sit down. This is, you just can't do you know, normal things. I, I try to do a walk around the block. I've had triathletes that a flight of stairs is just enough to sort of finish them for the day. Um, cognitive impairment. Um, and I have to say for a lot of my friends and colleagues, the inability to be able to think properly. Um, you know, how is, how is a pilot supposed to go back to work when they're having cognitive disturbances? Um, how is a nurse supposed to take care of patients? Um, I've had college, tenured college professors who have difficulty signing their name on a check. Um, so 
brain fog is maybe an, an underestimation of just how profound the cognitive impact can be. Um, Are there assessments out there for assessing the cognitive ability for physicians, nurses, our, our other healthcare colleagues, or the pilots that are flying planes that we may be auditing <laughs> in someday? <laughs> yes. Um, so th there, there are actually, and there are a number of studies where they, they've used these, they've looked at it, they've really documented that people with and without COVID, um, you know, the comparison and the deficits. Um, one of the challenges, and I think this is, you know, for clinicians that are listening, um, a lot of patients um, are very sensitive, are very defensive and a little resistant to getting formal testing, um, you know, as if, if you can deny it, maybe it will go away. Um, so this can often be, you know, bedside manner, having a conversation. Um, a lot of times if this person is going to have trouble returning to work, um, you know, and potentially pursuing disability, having something objective like that cognitive testing can really help to document it. So, um, you know, as demoralizing, I know, as it can often be for someone who previously was high functioning to go through the testing, um, it often can actually be a, a really good and really valuable thing to do. And I think that's important that we help the patients be where they need to be. And it also um, brings another point to my mind about um, our role as the healthcare team and the ethics of helping each other when we see the cognitive impact on a colleague. Do you have any advice about that? How do you handle that? Yeah, no, that that's, that's very challenging, right? That's, that's mm -hmm. one of sort of the highest things, because, you know, what the fear here is, you're saying that I can't do my job, your my livelihood is threatened. And that that is very scary for for anyone. Um, so that that's going to take very gentle, um, a lot of a dialogue sort of seeing if the person is open to discussing it. Um, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, very, very challenging. That that has to, you know, to be honest, personally, that's what devastates me the most is seeing my patients who just sort of lost their ability to to think. To um, the other trouble breathing, pulmonary compromise, um, and the tough thing here: a lot of these individuals will have normal pulmonary function testing. They'll have normal chest X rays, normal CAT scans. All all the tests are normal. I sometimes wonder why so many tests are being done. So much radiation is occurring. Um, and, and for some patients, it can be frustrating and nothing was found. Um, so a lot of times it helps if you can prepare patients to so talk to them ahead of time. Say, you know what? It is normal. It is typical to get all these testing done. And in most cases, we will not see um, the problem on a picture. We will not see the problem on one of these, um, one of these tests. Um, but it does help because sometimes you will discover things on these tests that might, might impact therapy. Um, cardiac issues. Um, you could probably guess we're starting to probably, um, you know, pull in some of our colleagues to help us if we're a primary care doctor. Um, you know, sometimes we, we get a cardiologist involved to sort of determine, um, you know, what can we do? What are these cardiac issues? Um, sometimes there can be heart damage. Um, sometimes there can be rhythm disturbances. Sometimes there can be the, the devastating autonomic dysfunction. Um, I have a 16-year-old gal that I just saw yesterday. And when I first met her, um, she she had prior to COVID been a very active athletic um, dancer. Um, and her, her mother showed me videos, um, same age as my son, Barnaby, who's 16 as well. Now, after developing COVID, um, this little girl had gone on to develop um, vocal cord paralysis. She had such um, severe POTS disease, this autonomic dysfunction. Um, 
that whenever she would go from being laying flat to just inclining the head, she would start vomiting. She would have a drop in her blood pressure. Um, so working with a cardiologist, there are, and I will say, things we can do. When I saw this young lady um, in our visit, she was sitting up during the entire visit, no vomiting, smiling, nice. <laughs> um, starting to get a little bit of her voice back because the vocal cord paralysis had been diagnosed. And um, so um, cardiac issues, there's a lot there. And so we may be reaching out to our colleagues for help. Um, we may be using medicines that we're not normally used to using for these individuals. Um, GI, I think that GI issues are underappreciated. Um, you know, recently we're hearing, oh, with Omicron, the symptoms have changed. We're hearing more back pain, more gastrointestinal. Uh, my comment was, were you talking to your patients for the last two years? Because <laughs> early on, if you went in the room, <laughs> spent some time, um, majority of people were having gastrointestinal issues. I mean, this, this, is a, this is a virus that affects the whole body. And so some of those gastrointestinal issues, some of that really severe intractable heartburn, some of that loose stool and diarrhea, it does not go away. Sometimes it gets better and then it comes back. Um, one of the things with these symptoms is they don't always appear during the acute phase. Sometimes people get better and it's about six to eight weeks out when they first start to have the problems. So we address those problems individually from the GI tract perspective then, just as you would cardiology or respiratory issues? So that's actually a lot of the way we're addressing these issues is, you know, we, we have ways of dealing with diarrhea. We have day, ways of, of dealing with, with the acid issues, with the reflux. We have days, uh, ways of dealing with the tachycardia. Um, we'll get into headaches in a moment. And what we do is we use, we use methods that work. We, we focus at this point. We don't have a great understanding of the underlying mechanism that will allow us to go after that. Um, so we focus on these as we would from, you know, all the other patients with that presenting symptom. And, and we're, having, we're having success. We're actually able to improve these, these patients' experience. Now, what about patients that lose their sense of taste and smell? Are there strategies around um, how to address weight loss if, if that becomes an issue? With long COVID? Yeah, so actually, I think that's great that you bring that up. You know, we, we think of, oh, you can't smell, you can't taste. Um, but one of the big impacts that can have is people start losing weight. They're not eating. Eating is not enjoyable. Eating becomes a chore. Um, and so that becomes a challenge. Um, you know, some people are trying to add extra spices to their foods, just trying to some, so they can actually get some sort of an experience. Um, there was actually a chef and that, that's part of how we realized he had, uh, he had COVID is, you know, people were like, what are you doing to the food? Cause he was over spicing it. <laughs> um, no, th this is really a challenge. And unfortunately, you know, early on, we had a lot of ideas about how we might treat the loss of smell, the impact on taste. Um, but unfortunately, you know, using nasal steroids, some of other, we haven't really seen any good evidence that that's making a difference. It really just may be a matter of time, letting the support cells um, regrow and return after the damage. What are you seeing as the time frame for the majority of those patients getting the sense of taste and smell back? And is it different with the various variants that are out there? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's okay. different with the different variants. I'll say that. Um, but there is a little bit of a time course. Um, you know, in what we're seeing in the people who've been vaccinated, um, it's usually coming back quicker. So that's, that's encouraging. Um, we still are seeing it. We've definitely still seen loss of taste and smell and vaccinated it tends to be shorter lived. Um, with the unvaccinated, I will say, um, here, we were actually seeing months and months 
And then one of the first things we would notice is smell would return, taste would return, but it would be described as metallic or foul or unpleasant, um, taking a while for it to return back to normal. Um, but we still we still have individuals from um, almost two years ago, we're almost two years into this pandemic now, um, who still have yet to get their taste and smell back. So for some people, it's longer. There is an optimism that two years is going to be kind of the limit on this, but we'll have to see. Time will tell. Yeah. Time will tell. And that is the thing with long COVID <laughs> is that it is a long-term disease. So a lot of studies need to happen yet. Yeah. And they, sure. they really do. I mean, we keep talking about all these studies that are going to happen. We're still waiting. Um, but to continue in the list of things, what, so insomnia, what about that is actually quite common. Um, I had a colleague, I don't think he realized he had insomnia. We'll get into the impact of vaccines, but he got vaccinated. He said, you know what, Dan, I didn't realize this, but you know, a couple of weeks ago I was, I, I got my vaccine and now I'm sleeping through the night. I used to always sleep through the night. <laughs> and this was a, a long COVID symptom that he had developed, but never made the connection until he got vaccinated and it went away. Um, the insomnia, um, you know, sometimes we're using um, melatonin, which is surprisingly effective, but not in everyone, right? So it becomes try the melatonin, about five milligrams, 30 minutes before you go to bed. Um, some individuals were using antihistamines, things like Benadryl before they go to bed, um, you know, often going through um, some people over time will actually develop an anxiousness. You know, they, they sort of are traumatized by the fact that they try to go to sleep and they can't. Um, but once you can actually address insomnia, this can often have an effect, a waterfall effect on some of the other symptoms as well. So always important to ask, do I have insomnia? Do my patients have insomnia? Um, and let's sort of start trying to work through that. Um, you know, the mental health issues, um, you know, how much of this is being driven by COVID itself? How much is this being driven by the fact that you've been sick for months and months and not getting better? Um, we actually think COVID itself has impacts on our, on our emotional state, on anxiety, on depression, and others. So um, a lot of times you find you're working with mental health professionals who are overworked, overtaxed, in short supply. Um, so a lot of times our primary care docs are having to reach in and, and start working, you know, treating anxiety, treating depression. Um, but what goes a long way is, is validation is if we as clinicians are aware, if we can have educated conversations with our patients where they appreciate that we understand what they're going through, where they feel validated um, during this, this long recovery phase, I'm gonna call it hopefully with my optimism, um, that can really be an important thing. Um, have you found that um, virtual visits are helpful with mental health, in, during, especially during the COVID time with needing to have that physical distance as well. Yeah, I actually think that telehealth has really been helpful for a lot of patients, um, particularly ones, you know, with long COVID. They're exhausted asking them to come out of the home, which maybe they're frightened about having gotten COVID, um, to to wait in, a, in an office waiting room, um, going through that whole, a lot of them feel secure. A lot of them seem to really enjoy the telehealth experience. Um, I offer both opportunities, um, and most of them actually really enjoy the telehealth. So telehealth has actually been really a great way um, for a lot of people. But there certainly are times when you want to have an individual, you want to do a face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. um, but boy, the, the telehealth has really been helpful for a lot of individuals. Yeah. Um, and headaches, this can't be complete without headaches. An incredible amount of new onset, really migraine type headaches after acute COVID extending into the long COVID period. 
Um, and here we've really had a lot of success with our traditional migraine medications. So, you know, the, the short acting, um, you know, sumatriptans, um, all different triptan medicines, um, even some of the long acting injectables, things like HOV and Amavig that have come out. Um, you know, the, these people do not need to suffer. Um, and a lot of times you may get a neurologist involved who is experienced with migraines and that training, that expertise, those therapeutics can actually cross over, which is great. All right. So I am going to go back to our case study. I can see a lot of crossover between a lot of specialties. It, it really is. This is, um, you know, most places and say like what we've done here um, on Long Island, what a lot of our medical centers in the city have done as well, is really set up COVID recovery centers, you know, where you have a group of specialists um, and primary care providers who are interested, excited to keep up with the developments, really are wanting to take care of these patients and willing to work together with a lot of communication because it does take communication. Um, so let's get back to that husband and wife that we yes. talked about. We left them sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> they're still sitting there, but they've been listening the whole time. They're, they're enjoying this whole discussion. Good, good. And, uh, you know, wh what was their question? They had heard that maybe getting vaccinated was going to make a difference. Um, so we actually had that discussion. Um, we discussed the fact that, you know, I had made this observation, a number of us had seen this early on when people first started to get vaccinated, um, that a certain percent of people, not all, um, but a certain percent were improving after vaccination. So the husband and wife decided to move forward, both getting two doses of an mRNA vaccine, um, went ahead and saw them six weeks later. Why the six weeks? So get that first dose get that second dose, and then we give it a little time to see what's going to happen. Um, what we're seeing roughly is maybe 30% are, are noticing significant improvement after the first dose, picking up a few more. So we're up to about 50, 60% after two doses, um, but then not everyone, right? So checking in to see where we get. Um, so the wife reported full resolution of her symptoms. She said, I am 100%. I am back. This is great. So that was wonderful. Um, the husband um, reported only some improvement, but his main thing, no no real impact and improvement on his GI symptoms. So sort of nice because we're getting, you were getting the honest story here, right? Not everyone, you know, we don't want to over-promise and under-deliver here. Um, one of the first things that I usually um, discuss with my patients who come in with long COVID is getting vaccinated if they haven't, um, seeing how they do, getting that first shot, getting that second shot, maybe even getting that third shot. Um, vaccines are clearly safe um, in an individual that was infected with COVID before. Um, they may even also have this therapeutic benefit. Um, there also is potentially the reduction in them getting a second infection, um, potentially having a bad consequence. So, right, you've had COVID before, you're a little traumatized, you're, you're even so traumatized, you're not sure you want to go out to see the doctor because you might get COVID again. Um, getting vaccinated can, can help with that fear. And that was going to be a question I had is um, a patient that previously had COVID, are they able to get infected with COVID again and again and again? And I think you may have alluded to that with the vaccines that they may be more frequent for us. And just like the flu, the flu shot, we may be getting a COVID shot, um, a vaccine on a routine basis. So we can get infected and infected and infected. Is that what I'm hearing? Infected, 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 infected. Yes. <laughs> so it, it really, I, I have to say, like, you know, early on when we started seeing um, 
COVID, um, there was a lot of discussion. You know, certain viruses, um, you get infected once and, you know, your chance of getting reinfected is incredibly rare. Coronaviruses as a group, um, they're characterized by an ability to reinfect. Um, your normal common coronaviruses, it's about once a year you can actually get infected and then the next year reinfected, same, same common coronavirus, doesn't even need to change. It has some ability to thwart our ability to make an enduring immune system. Um, so we started seeing the first reinfections as early as um, the spring of 2020. So it was pretty soon um, that we started to see the first few. Um, now, clearly, with, with Omicron, we are seeing lots and lots of, of reinfections. Um, we're seeing we're seeing a Delta infection in November. We're seeing Omicron December, January. So um, I even mm. unfortunately have some individuals that I took care of April 2020 in the hospital, treated them with oxygen, got them through this, back in the hospital now, back on oxygen because they didn't take the opportunity to get vaccinated. Um, in the South African studies, we're, we're seeing documentations of people with their fourth COVID infection. So, yeah. That's a shame. And especially if the vaccine could prevent that, or at least prevent the hospitalization that goes along with it. Yeah, no, I think that's, and I think that's a big thing. I mean, people who've had COVID before can get reinfected. If you get vaccinated after that infection, you can significantly reduce that chance. Um, so we recommend vaccines for everyone, um, whether you've been infected before or not, just to reduce your chance of, of getting COVID again. And speaking of everyone, we haven't really touched on pediatrics much, and you're not a pediatrician, um, but do you have any information for us about pediatric patients, morbidity, mortality across the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, so the last last couple of months have been tough there, right? We have more mm -hmm. children in hospital now than we, we ever have had um, during the entire pandemic. Um, more kids getting infected. Um, some of our hospitals, 30, 40, 50% of the kids in there um, having COVID. Here at our local hospital, it's about 50%. Um, when children end up in the hospital, about a third of them end up in the ICU. Um, we really, we try not to admit children to the hospital. It's, it's rather traumatic for children to end up in the hospital. Um, you know, Age does impact your risk, um, but there isn't any age cutoff where people um, stop being at risk. Um, so now we have vaccine access going all the way down to five and up. Um, there were some concerns um, with, with the myocarditis in sort of the 12 to 17, but in that younger, in that five to 12, um, with the lower dose, we're not seeing myocarditis. We're seeing it incredibly well-tolerated, incredibly effective in that age group. Um, when we're seeing issues in the slightly older kids, um, we're talking about a little bit of discomfort, inflammation for a day or so. We're not mm -hmm. seeing long term. So much different than the the heart issues we have when a when a child ends up getting infected with COVID. Um, but no, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of children end up in the hospital um, now that we have other viruses circulating as well: RSV, influenza. Um, there was a study published just the end of December. Not really a study, I guess it's an MMWR publication, um, and you know about a third of those kids have something else going on too. So, sort of the double whammy uh, getting those kids in the hospital. So again, um, it's it's patients that are at risk for other reasons as well, and then they. Succumb yeah. to COVID. Well, the interesting thing, and I think this is really important, um, when they looked at all those children that got admitted to hospital with COVID, 
one third of them had no other medical problems. Oh, interesting. Which I think, because we always think, oh, well, um, oh, well, they have comorbidities. Oh, it well, won't they happen have to my child, right? That, I think that's where we're going. It won't happen to my child because my child is so young and healthy. And this is devastating. A third of those children, there was no risk factor. There was no warning sign. There was no heightened um, concern. And they end up in hospital. And I think not only that, but children can get long COVID as well. Um, and I'm often, you know, involved in discussions, um, you know, that I, I will not go down and, you know, to the youngest age and, and do pediatrics because I'm, I'm an adult infectious disease specialist. Um, but I certainly have a lot of discussions on a regular basis with my pediatric colleagues. And they all have a number of, of young individuals who are struggling with long COVID. And some of the long COVID, I have to say, for for um, younger individuals can be devastating. Um, you know, the 12 year old girl who at, you know, three months out, all her hair fell out. I mean, that is devastating to, to a young, young lady to lose her hair. Mm-hmm. Um, the soccer player who, who can't compete on the team anymore because, you know, after COVID, she just never got her um, ability to, to exercise. And um, so it can be really devastating for these young kids, not just, not just getting sick, not just hospitalization, not just the risk of death, but um, a chunk of them just never getting back to where they were before cognitive issues, Johnny, who won't pay attention, um, you know, Sarah, who can't play soccer anymore. This is really devastating for the kids. And the the descriptor of long COVID um, has a different connotation when you're 12 than when you're 80, and the impact on the rest of your the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, it really does. You know, if it's four weeks, if it's eight weeks, and you still can't go back and do what you want to do, that that's devastating. Eight weeks when you're a child, that's your lifetime. That is so so long. Well, thank you for dipping into the pediatric piece there. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, certainly. I always like to say children are at risk of COVID. So, you know, we can't can't forget about them. Um, And then even, you know, I'll say the indirect effect, right? A lot of children get COVID, then a parent ends up getting sick, a parent has a bad outcome. Oh my gosh, how devastating to to that child. Um, So yeah, on so many levels, COVID has really um, impacted our children. Mm -hmm. Certainly has. Any other parting words for us? No, I was, if you have any more questions, um, I'm certainly here and, um, you know, let, let me know. Um, and hopefully we'll be back for more discussions in the future. Great. Great. Um, well, thank you, Dr. Griffin. We really appreciate the time you spent with us. And for those of you listening, keep your learning about long COVID going by exploring the references and resources for this course in this episode's show notes. And listen a few moments longer to learn how you can obtain CE credit for this podcast. Thank you for listening. This is Deborah Martin for Elite Learning. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.